welcome to another episode of Psych Attack. I'm Dr. Jasmine B. MacDonald. Today, Dr. Ellie Quinlan and I explore the education and training of future psychologists. I hope you're going well and have settled in with a warm cup of tea. Ellie, thanks so much for coming along to have a chat with me today. No problem. Thanks for having me. So I was thinking maybe a really nice place to start would be for you to um, tell us a bit about yourself um, and your background. Sure. So I did my initial university training in psychology and pursued the professional psychology pathway. So I became registered as a psychologist under the 5 plus 1 and worked Um, clinically full-time for a few years, mainly doing therapy and assessment with teenagers, children and families, and then went back to university to um, do a PhD alongside part-time work and then moved into um, academia. So what motivated you to come back and do a PhD? Um, I think opportunities to research when you finish your formal studies um, and your working in the field can be um, hard to find and was really interested to learn a bit more both about the process of research, research but also have the opportunity to um, produce something. Yeah, nice. Why psychology? What brought you to psych in the first place? Um, I think I stumbled upon it in a way. Uh started off doing sociology um, as I was interested in people but found it it didn't feel like the quite right fit for me and I went and had a chat with the career advisor at the university and um, she suggested try psychology so I um, went along to a lecture just to test it out and found it really interesting and it felt like Um, It felt like a challenge for me Um, and yeah, just went with it from there. I actually, I'm grinning as you say that because um, through my own studies and through teaching as well, that um, switching that people tend to do between social work, psychology and sociology is pretty common. Mm. And I actually had a similar experience of studying social work um, sociology and psych and finding psych really challenging and then being attracted to it mm. <laughs> maybe indicative of a personality trait there yeah yeah um so um your your area of interest and expertise is education and training of um future and, and practicing psychologists yeah so i'm really interested in Kind of two areas, the, as you said, the training and education of um, aspiring psychologists, but also what impacts on the process of therapy. So a lot of research in applied psychology or mental health training um, is very clinically focused where you look at different groups of disorders like depression, Um, social anxiety, researching schizophrenia, or looking at types of intervention like cognitive behaviour therapy or schema therapy. Uh, But 
I've found that more and more I'm interested in the kind of common factors or the invisible processes that happen in therapy across all of that. And then understanding that more gives an opportunity to incorporate that into the training that we provide um, to be able to put in some of this stuff, which is there but not spoken about. Yeah, absolutely. What do you tend to draw on in this topic um, in terms of your understanding of psych kind of theory and practice? For me, it's really looking at the process of therapy. So we, we know a lot about things like the therapeutic alliance, the connection between a psychologist and their client. Um, and a lot of training focuses on that. And then, as I mentioned before, it often then jumps from, you know, the connection is really important and how you interact and sit with a client is important. Um, and now let's look at groups of interventions or groups of disorders. And there's so much more richness to what happens in the room between um, psychologists and their clients. Yeah, yeah. And shifting away from... Um that focus of um, maybe even specifically a focus on the the uh, foundational theories of psychology and more of the meta aspects of, you know, what, what the person brings and what that experience is like for them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm kind of interested when I talk to researchers about their work, when you sit down and you talk to people or you're like pitching ideas or talking about your research, are there any assumptions that people bring to the area? So you say, I, I research um, um, education and training of um, professional psychologists or future psychologists. Um, are there any assumptions that people jump to and they think, oh, so you must do this? And you're like, no, that's not quite actually what I'm interested in. Yeah, I think as I mentioned, um, probably the main one is looking at groups of um, disorders because that is how, you know, that framework, that medical model kind of diagnostic framework is um, really underpins a lot of current clinical training. So often when I give um, talks about my research interests, I'll make it really clear that I'm, I'm interested in, you know, process, process of therapy and kind of common factors um, but I still get a lot of students coming to me saying, oh, I really want to research, um, you know, schizophrenia or borderline personality disorder. Um, and that's not quite what I do. <laughs> and you smile and you're supportive, mm. but you're kind of dying a little bit inside. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Not quite. That's dramatic. But, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Okay, so set the scene for us. You're, you become really interested in this topic. What was kind of being done in this area before you started and what did you see as the, the problem that you wanted to address? Yeah, so um, I was lucky that I've had some really great mentorship through my career and it was actually my PhD supervisor, Frank Dean, um, post-PhD, we were talking about, you know, this general area and potential research directions and he said um you know I'm going to give you a gift Ellie of an idea that I don't have time to pursue um I, th I think you should look into uncertainty in psychologists and 
so that that was really the start um, looking into this idea of uncertainty which is a word that I had heard used a lot theoretically when training students or talking about the work we do but not in a research context so we um I had a had a bit of a scope on that and there's really extensive literature around uncertainty in the medical field particularly in training of doctors uh, by un uncertainty I'm referring to that quality of being unsure or um, not not having direction or feeling like you have enough information and it tends to happen when a situation is ambiguous or really complex or there's an element of risk involved. So there's a lot of literature around uncertainty in doctors, which shows that when doctors are not quite sure about what a patient is presenting with or the best way to um, assist or treat a person, they have a lot more anxiety, they're more likely to feel stressed and burnt out and they're also less likely to collaborate and make shared decisions with their patients and they kind of fall into an expert mode. Mm, interesting. And the other interesting thing is that uncertainty is both a state that can come about depending on the situation but it's also a personality variable. So some people are more prone to experiencing uncertainty than other people and people vary in their capacity to hold that uncertainty when it comes up. Some people it feels comfortable and and natural and okay and other people uncertainty feels extremely threatening even when it's a situation that doesn't have an identifiable negative outcome it still feels really uncomfortable for some people. That's super interesting. So is this like, why is that? Is it about making some kind of attribution or assumption of that there will be a negative outcome, even if that it seems like a neutral situation? Yeah, it could be. There's a few different models about uncertainty in in this kind of allied health context and one of the things which does contribute is how people appraise or make sense of uncertainty and people can look at it and think this is an opportunity to learn more and understand or they can view it and think this is a threat. Okay, so um, we have this background literature in doctors. Um, what makes you interested in uncertainty in psychologists? So... As I mentioned before, it, it felt like something which was really intuitive for me in that, of course, uncertainty would play out in the work that psychologists do, but there hadn't been any research on it. Um, and reflecting on the work in psychology in comparison to fields such as medicine, um, although medicine also has a lot of uncertainty, and there can be overlap between conditions, there is that biological or physical element where, you know, if you perform the right test or um, investigate in a certain way, you you can find 
biological evidence to say, okay, this is what's happening for the person, but we don't have that in psychology. Right. There are no, um, well, research seems to be indicating that there are no um, biological markers for a number of conditions where you can look at someone's brain and say, yes, they have, you know, depression or they have anxiety. There's a big element of subjectivity to it. And for me, I think that context would bring out a lot of uncertainty because we don't have often anything physical to fall back on. Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of overlap too. Um, I mean, there's a lot of problems with our current diagnostic system, uh, but one of one one that's relevant to this topic is that there is a lot of overlap between symptoms and disorders. So people often don't neatly fit into a diagnostic category or they might fit into multiple categories. And then if you've got someone with, you know, four potential diagnoses, what, you know, where do you go with your treatment? Um, so that can create a lot of uncertainty. And there's also a lot of um, a lot of risk in the role too because we need to weigh up, you know, are the people that we are seeing safe, both safe within themselves, safe for other people? Um, you know, are they likely to harm people in their life? Are they a danger to the public? And again, you know, you don't have anything really tangible to fall back on there you need to make that judgment clinically based on a lot of subjective information and based on the information your client gives you which you know they have their own agenda too Mm, and depending on your role and the context that you work in potentially in a um, you know a a short period of time and you might not see them for you know Mm. like however long in between sessions or um, appointments or you know, whatever the context is. Yeah. Okay. So we've got, we have a really interesting research problem that actually is a really interesting practical problem. Mm. How do you go about addressing that? Addressing that? What, what did you do? So the first thing that I've done in this area is I wanted to just understand it from a really open perspective because, again, nothing had been done in a research context so my initial work in the area has been qualitative by going out and speaking to psychologists to understand what is bringing up uncertainty for you is it happening at all if it is how is it impacting you Um, what what do you do when it shows up how do you how do you hold that or manage that and has it changed over time? Has it always been there? Does it come and go? Um, so going going to the people who are impacted by this to understand and try and generate a bit of an understanding or a model because I didn't want to assume that the work that has been done in medicine would necessarily translate over. So I did a project, uh, I think last year, um, or maybe 20, maybe before the years all have rolled into one after COVID. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, where uh, I spoke with 24 different psychologists to understand, you know, were they, influ- were they um, experiencing uncertainty and how it came up. 
and some of the things that they well the first thing actually before I even get into what I found was I was really surprised by the interest in the project I had a lot of participants come forward and say you know I'm really excited to talk about this because I haven't had an opportunity to talk about my uncertainty before or um Mm, that's when you know you're onto something interesting right it's not just you yeah (laughs) you're like okay cool it's a little bit of confirmation this is worthwhile yeah definitely because you know finding um finding participants in research can often be a bit of a struggle um so it was really nice to have people people coming forward and saying you know I'm, I'm really keen to talk about this so um just for maybe some um listeners who may not have a psych background in terms of participants we're talking about registered psychologists who are tending to do therapy yep yep so to be eligible to be in the study they had to be registered as a psych so they had to have completed their training I didn't have any limitations on how long they had to be practicing for uh, but they did need to be currently working with clients um, in a applied role yeah I just point that out I'm thinking about um sometimes people not being aware that people can train or like have a PhD in psychology or have an undergraduate degree in psychology, but not actually be able to call themselves a psychologist. So Mm. um, what we're talking about here is practicing psychologists. Yeah. Yeah. So some of the, some of the things I learned from these participants were first that uncertainty was really common in the sample. Um, Every, every participant spoke about um, having experiences of uncertainty. There were particular elements of the work which brought about uncertainty, which I can, I'll tell you a bit more about, but there was also this sense of it's just in, it's part of the field, it's part of what we do. Um, people struggled to put words to it, but it was like, you know, it's this thread that's always there. Isn't that interesting that they're acknowledging it's always there, it's it's it sounds like it's more of a feeling than something that's ever articulated like people aren't really talking about it but they're so motivated Mm. to talk to you about it and it's it sounds like it's so widespread I think that's fascinating yeah and there were certain elements of the work which brought it up more often so particularly if participants were working with complex clients where they weren't quite sure what might be going on for them diagnostically, um, any clients who were risky, and then also working with multiple clients where you might have, you're supporting a child and a parent and they might have conflicting interests or their stories don't match up. Mm. Uh, Participants also talked about when the direction is unclear, so when there's not a clear therapeutic path to take that brought up a lot of uncertainty and ethical dilemmas so anything that fell into that gray of you know I'm not quite sure if this person is at risk or not or I'm not quite sure if I need to report this in terms of child protection or not um, that brought up a lot of uncertainty too and participants described when it showed up it had it had a large um, impact on them in the room in terms of 
people tended to go either one of two ways. They tended to have a bit of an anxious response and have, you know, the butterflies in the stomach, heart beating faster, fidgeting, feeling a bit overwhelmed, or they tended to become frustrated Mm. and they would feel really tense and almost angry. Angry? How so? That sense of I want to know what to do and I'm frustrated that I don't understand. At themselves. Yeah. 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 This whole normalising of the psychologist as a person who's going to have a reaction to a situation is really interesting. Mm. <laughs> and maybe we don't do it enough. <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay, so um, did they talk to you about how they manage those situations? Because that sounds really uncomfortable, um, either feeling really anxious or frustrated. Um, mm. What do we do in that situation? Yeah, so there was a lot of um, a lot of self-doubt came up for people. So they would question their own competency, question, you know, am I doing the right thing? Am I, you know, a decent psychologist at all? Um, it brought up a lot of that imposter syndrome. But in terms of practical steps, the main one was seeking supervision from um, a more senior psychologist And often they described going to supervision wanting either a really clear answer of tell me what to do, I'm stuck, Um, I don't know the path, or just wanting support and validation that this is really tricky. And the other thing that tended to happen was they would focus on the client. So they would, you know, try and, in a way, um, it sounded a bit like overcompensating. So they would suddenly go and do a, a whole lot of research to, you know, maybe I'm missing something and I want to understand more. I'm going to read the whole file over again and check my notes to see if I've missed anything. Okay, so it's not or, um, not quite accepting that maybe this is just a situation where I have to sit with uncertainty for a bit. I mm. must have missed something. And so putting in Mm. some extra work. Yeah. Yeah. And just under half of the sample uh, stated that they would communicate it to the client. So they would go to the client and say, you know, I'm actually not not too sure at the moment on what's going on for you or the best path forward. Can we work it out together? Um, And that was really interesting where other participants um, weren't comfortable having those conversations or felt a pressure to kind of figure it out or fix it before they uh, had any discussion with the client. This is making me wonder when, you know, earlier on you were saying there is potentially a personality aspect. And if that's the case, then this is there's going to be this personality aspect of tolerance of uncertainty, not only for the psychologist, but for the client as well. Mm. So if we now have a psychologist come to a client and say, you know what, I'm actually not sure of what the next step is. (laughs) I'm just wondering about that interaction of if we have this grid of high, low Mm. tolerance of uncertainty with the psych and with the client, how this plays out when both have a low tolerance to uncertainty, Mm. (laughs) both in this situation of not being sure what to do next. Yeah, definitely. And and I, I think there's been research on that in the medical field where they look at the um the client's tolerance of uncertainty and how that 
then impacts on the interaction, which is really fascinating. Be um, yeah, great, great to see how that plays out in in psychology too. Um, the the other thing which participants mentioned, which was really interesting because I think it showed just the extent of the impact of uncertainty, is it brought out a lot of avoidance. So participants spoke about they would try and avoid sessions with the client. So they might space them out a bit further than they might um, other clients that they're working with. Or if the client cancelled a session, they felt a lot of relief. And in some cases, participants talked about, I actually moved them on to a different clinician because I wasn't comfortable working with them and sitting with that uncertainty. Mm. It's um, that um, practical implication is really important to consider because if this work can can unpack how you can further support psychologists to work through this, and that means that they're not avoiding sessions with someone who, like you were saying before, the people that are most or the clients that are most likely to lead to feelings of uncertainty are complex, risky clients. We don't want those people not being in sessions, you know, <laughs> referring on makes mm. a lot of sense if, you, if you're not feeling like you can work with somebody. Yeah, definitely. And the last thing that came out of those discussions with psychologists is this idea that for the majority of people, they found that uncertainty was more present early in their career and over time it either was less frequent, so uncertainty came up less, or when it came up, they felt that they could hold it better. But for a um, minority of participants, they spoke about uncertainty actually got harder over time. So they either noticed more experiences of uncertainty or when it showed up, they found it harder to tolerate. Uh, Often due to that idea that the more you know, the more you realise you don't know. Um, And, uh, you know, that brought up really interesting questions for me about, you know, what what makes that difference for people who find this easier with time and experience and people who find it it just gets more prevalent Mm. is that something you've um started to be able to work out yet or is that maybe something you'll you'll explore in the future some initial steps so I've been working on a longitudinal project to try and understand this idea of uncertainty changing over time where I've looked at psychologists at the commencement of their postgraduate training so the start the start of their master's degree which is often where people will start working with clients for the first time and trying out their therapy skills so I've done a project where we measured uncertainty in two ways uncertainty in daily life So trying to tap into uncertainty as a more personality distribution. How do I feel about uncertainty in general? And then uncertainty specific to client care. So the uncertainty in the work that I do. 
and we gave them a vignette of a client who was deliberately ambiguous, where it wasn't quite clear what was going on, and asked them to give us an explanation of what was going on for the client. And then immediately after that, measured how anxious they felt. Um, in that, we weren't actually interested in the explanations of the client. Um, we were interested in how anxious they felt when they tried to manage um, an uncertain clinical situation. So we, we followed that same process at the start of their training in the initial few weeks, um, eight months later, and then at the one-year point to look at does this change over time. And what we found was uncertainty in regards to kind of daily life didn't change. So if people came in with a low tolerance for uncertainty in life in general, they tended to still have a low tolerance for uncertainty a year into their degree and vice versa. But generally the uncertainty in regards to the work with clients um, changed and improved. And the more that it changed over the year, so the more specifically, the more that it improved, the less anxiety they had when we gave them the ambiguous cases. Mm, interesting. Uh, which shows that it's not necessarily that these are just anxious clinicians who struggle with uncertainty in general and therefore it's coming up in their study. It didn't matter if they had high or low tolerance of uncertainty as a person or in their life. What made a difference was how much uncertainty they had in the work that they do with clients. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, right? They're mastering a skill or, you know, developing this skill, um, which it, again, sounds like it's coming back to a bit of a difference between maybe a bit of a um, trait mm. tolerance to uncertainty compared to a state um, that might, mm. maybe it's a bit longer than state <laughs> because it's over an yeah. extended period of time training, um, the not extended period of time, but um, it's not just going to pass over a matter of hours or, or a couple of days or something, mm. but through knowledge and experience, develop and improve. Yeah, which, which is really promising from that training angle because it doesn't necessarily matter if people come in to their degree with a lower tolerance of uncertainty as a person because we know that if we train them to be able to increase that capacity to hold uncertainty in the um, applied work that they do, that that can change. Um, and that for me is really exciting and where I want to take this research in the future, looking at what elements of training can help aspiring psychologists understand uncertainty and accept it as an inherent part of the work that we do that it's not always about finding the right answer or finding a clear um, a clear path there might not be one and there are times when we need to sit with that and be transparent with the people we work with mm. of the limits of our knowledge yeah absolutely so um 
I, I'm hearing you say, you know, that that's something you want to explore next. Like, what is it that you can add to training to develop that understanding and the, that ability to sit and um, mm. uh, tolerate that ambiguity, that uncertainty? What What's your kind of sense as someone with professional experience and having done research in this area? What do you think of things that um, maybe do make this easier or might be useful? Yeah, it's a big question. Um, that's what that's what we do I, here. <laughs> yeah, and I'm really not not sure because it hasn't been empirically tested. But I would suspect that normalizing would play a massive part. So even giving trainees education about you know their will be times in the work that you do where there's not going to immediately be a clear answer and that's okay in those times rather than viewing that as a threat and perhaps getting on the defensive and withholding information from the client and kind of scrambling to um, find an answer you know what are some adaptive ways we can approach that which might include talking to a supervisor about those concerns or fears or seeking advice on, you know, maybe there are some steps that can be taken in the interim. Mm. I think that's really interesting, Ellie, because um, as you just mentioned, it's not until that postgrad study, often until people start to have experiences, at least if they've come in and done the psychology pathway all the way through, before they're actually working with people. Mm. So they might not realize until that point, until they've done maybe three years of undergrad, a fourth year doing, you know, honors research and then gone into a master's program, potentially a bit of space in between if they've, you know, um, you know, done whatever else in between getting into a master's program before they realize this thing that they've been training to do that they've been really excited about and they want to call themselves a psychologist is actually really hard and mm. there's not there's not a clear answer and the way that we train in undergrad is is not like that you know there there is ambiguity and there's interpretation yeah. and there there are these things but it is there are far more certainties than sitting down face to face with someone um so i think that's pretty interesting yeah and as you said our um we train people for certainty not not for um for uncertainty and there is this idea that you know there is an answer if you look hard enough or there is a relevant concept but people are really unpredictable and you know it's not until people get into postgrad and they sit down with a client and try and follow you know this is what the manual says I do in a first session or second session but the client didn't answer the question or the client got upset and walked out or the client didn't connect with me what do I do now um, hang on this isn't this isn't how it's supposed to work let's do this again <laughs> mm, yeah even having um things like you know and, and of course it would need to be appropriate to the stage of development because people need to learn the basics first and we don't want to overwhelm anyone but having case studies where maybe there are multiple possibilities or not a clear answer or a lot of what if questions to help students start to think, okay, when it's not clear cut depression or clear cut anxiety, what do I do with this? How do I make sense of it? 
Yeah, for sure. So I'm wondering then, Ellie, um, we've covered um, some really interesting topics of, you know, tolerance of uncertainty um, in the qual study that you've described, but also um, looking that longitudinal study of how that might change over the course of training. What other studies um, or topics are you interested in when it comes to education and training um, of future psychs? Yeah, um, another very relevant concept would be discomfort. So looking at clinicians' discomfort with different topics and how that might impact on therapy. I had a, a really great master's research student last year, Belinda Nixon, who had a really great idea to look into psychologist comfort and discomfort with asking clients about a sexual abuse history Um, after noticing you know after some of her own reflection on noticing that she found those questions hard to ask with clients and wanted to know if that came up for other people and that has been really interesting as you know the prevalence of sexual abuse and sexual assault in Australia is extremely high um, I think up to one in one in four or one in five women have had these experiences yet it's not routine or often not routine as part of therapy to specifically ask have you ever had sexual abuse or um been sexually assaulted in your lifetime often we'll ask about trauma have you had a trauma or anything difficult happen to you so we'll ask in a kind of vague roundabout way Um, but there's a lot of research indicating that the more direct you are with the question the more likely people are to give you that information Um, you know for a lot of reasons because of the shame the stigma so we did a bit of work talking with psychologists about do you ask your clients about if they've had a history of um, sexual abuse or sexual assault Um, if you do you know how do you do that and why if you don't do it what gets in the way and we found we interviewed 12 early career psychologists and we found that it wasn't routine practice with Psychologists saying, you know, that's just an uncomfortable topic. I wouldn't think to ask it. And a lot of that similar avoidance came up that I talked about earlier, where people would speak about, you know, if I did have, you know, a a form as part of my standard intake that needed me to inquire about trauma or sexual abuse and sexual assault, I would rush through it because I felt so uncomfortable asking those questions or. Um, putting that out there in the room and a lot of bodily a lot of bodily discomfort and again you know you mentioned earlier you know considering that human side to the therapist and you know it it's interesting that someone can be sitting there in the room feeling that uncomfortable and that impacted and needing to maintain that professional facade for the sake of the client so that's another area where 
it seemed participants talked about, you know, during my training, this was really unspoken. People talked a lot about, you know, the commonality of suicide and the importance of talking to clients about if they've had any thoughts about self-harm, but no one openly and transparently talked to me during my training about sexual abuse mm. and sexual assault. And if, if I ask a client about that, what do I do if they say yes? You know, I'm going to open up a can of worms and I'm not going to know what to do with it. So that was another example of one of those almost invisible things that we need to bring into more conscious awareness of our training and talk to trainees about, you know, as part of your work, you need to have really difficult conversations sometimes. And one of the difficult conversations you might have to have is asking people if they've had any sexual abuse or sexual assault and, you know, how are we going to, how are we going to get you more comfortable with that idea? You know, validating, modeling, role-playing, practicing to take away that discomfort so when they go into that situation it doesn't feel so uncertain and so foreign Mm. and when we when we think about um the trauma exposure experiences that's that's such a broad spectrum of things you know from motor vehicle accidents to you know we, we don't need to sit here and rattle them off but um i think any kind of sexual experience in general comes with a bunch of values and beliefs and taboos and cultural aspects. And then you add the aspect of abuse to it. Um, There's a whole bunch of assumptions and personal reactions to that. So we can't, you you can't know what it's like to sit with somebody and have a conversation like that until it happens. So to not have it addressed and normalized and all those things you talked about previously of, how do you normalize and um, and essentially have practice runs and have open conversations mm. about this stuff? Um, mm. the The consequences of not having those conversations can be quite dire because if we're formulating an understanding of why someone is in distress, why someone is depressed or anxious based on incorrect or missing information, and we form a treatment plan on that, when perhaps it was tied to a previous sexual abuse and sexual assault, um, or sexual assault, we're not we're not going to be doing effective work. And there was one study which um, I was a bit shocked by that showed that the likelihood that a client will complete suicide is better predicted by previous sexual abuse than by a diagnosis of depression. Wow. So you you can see that it it can even have lethal consequences Mm. if we're trying to keep someone safe and address their risk and there is a massive elephant in the room and we're not aware of it. We want people to be able to disclose those experiences in um, with a psychologist, if anywhere, but we also want (laughs) psychologists to feel like they know what to do in those situations and to not be stressed and burnt out or leave the industry because they don't know what, what to do or to feel, you know, that imposter syndrome or all those things you were talking about earlier. When you were selecting, you know, or thinking about the approach you're going to take to these topics or this broader topic, why, why qual? What, what was the strength of taking this approach to the topic? Hmm. 
Um, I think it came from reflecting on what is it that I actually want to understand or get out of the project. Uh, and a lot of my questions were focused on, you know, understanding what is this like, what is the experience of this, which lends itself to a more qualitative methodology, as if you put in, you know, anything like surveys, they come with a set of assumptions on, you know, what questions are important to include, etc. Uh, where with, you know, other work like the longitudinal, it wasn't so much about an open understanding, but about finding an answer to a more specific question of the, does this change over time? What were some of the potential challenges that came with taking a qualitative approach here? I think with any qualitative work, you need to be quite reflective and careful in the design of the study by considering, you know, what are my research questions? What do I, what do I want to understand and find out about? But then also start stepping back and considering what assumptions am I bringing in here? Or what bias might I be bringing in in the way I'm putting these questions forward? And you need to make sure that you're not setting up your questions in a way that they're more likely to get you a particular answer hmm. or get you information in a certain direction that you know, you've got a hunch about or um, that you are assuming might be important. So I think that that's one challenge I found in qualitative research. I found I need to just really slow down when designing a project to make sure that I've given enough time to sit with it and reflect on it and even cross-check often with another person, you know, these are my questions. Do they feel open when you read these? Are there any, you know, assumptions in there that I'm missing? I think with qualitative work, you need to be really mindful of the language you use with the interviews for the qualitative project on uncertainty. Um, I found that I used the word, how do you cope with uncertainty? during my interviews and then later reflected on all the assumptions that go along with that because it's implying that uncertainty is something that needs to be coped with. Um, and I've taken that learning into future research in this area um, to use a bit more neutral language. Even when we try and control for our own assumptions and keep things really open it it slips in yeah and I guess in some ways you you might have that reinforced a little bit with some of the things participants are saying to you but it is really mm. interesting that you sit back and reflect on that and say hey you know it's not it might not be that everyone's trying to cope with it and as you said some people actually were seeing it as a challenge and um you know really mm. open about it you know, you talked about what brought you to this topic and psychology. What keeps you in this topic? Oh, there's always more to do, <laughs> first of all. Always more gaps. And then also, I, I mean, I'm, I feel really passionate about it. And I feel like the, the, when I get to the later stages of this research, particularly when looking at, you know, what can be brought into training, in a practical sense to help people with these 
problems. Um, that to me feels really meaningful because it not only will hopefully benefit future psychologists, but would then in turn benefit all the clients that they support in the work that they do. Yeah, absolutely. While I've been listening to you and reflecting on that kind of um, tolerance of uncertainty and some of that discomfort that comes along with professional psych, I think more and more this is a relevant topic for academics and psychology as well, <laughs> mm. where there's shifts in, in what we do and, and uncertainty there. Yeah, I think once you have the um, uncertainty glasses on, there's so many so many areas of life where it creeps up. Yeah, for sure. Um, lovely. I, I thought maybe a nice way to wrap up our conversation would be for you to like maybe just tell us when you're not doing this really interesting research and thinking about, you know, how it might um, be useful for psychologists and, and for people accessing psychological services, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like to uh, garden. I like to be outside, um, get my hands dirty. It can be really nice to do something more manual where you don't have to use your brain <laughs> in the same way. So that, that for me is kind of gardening, weeding. I found it really grounding. Uh, I like to I like to sew as well, make things, and playing board games. But that one has crept into my research life as well Um, because I ended up doing a project on Dungeons and Dragons and mental health. But it's also also separate too. (laughs) That is amazing. Um, And I feel like I want to know more about that. But it it sounds like it could be a whole other episode. Yeah. <laughs> that's fantastic um maybe we can have some information about that for listeners if they're interested in the the notes for the episode yeah great <laughs> ellie let's do that thing that sometimes people aren't that great at doing unless they're encouraged to some shameless self-promotion um you're doing really fascinating work listeners are keen to follow up on what you're doing or keep in touch with um what what you're up to how can they do that Easiest way would be ResearchGate. I tend to keep my ResearchGate profile up to date. So whenever I've got a new project out, I'll add it to there. And if if there's any articles people are interested in and they don't have access due to not being a student or in the field, just send me a message. I love when I get requests for my articles and I think a lot of researchers do and people often don't think to ask but please ask it it is delightful yeah that's a really good point to make amazing Ellie thank you so much for um sitting down and having a chat with me today it's been uh absolute pleasure and super interesting so yeah thank you thanks for having me For those of you at home, that's all for today. Show notes for the episode can be found at www.psychattack.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Psych Attack, please rate it on your favorite podcast platform and share this episode to help other people find the show. If you have questions or feedback, you can reach out on Twitter at Psych Attack Cast. Thanks for listening and we'll catch up with you again next time.